Welcome to the Authentic Faith Podcast, a sermon catalog for Mission U, the student ministry at Mission Bible Church in Costa Mesa, California. We hope that this sermon will be a blessing to you as you pursue fervent faith in a fallen world. Enjoy. Good to see you guys. You guys ready to jump into God's Word tonight? Good, good. All right, well, go ahead and take your Bibles and jump on over to James chapter 2. We're going to be in James chapter 2 tonight. I see some new faces. This is nice. If you're new, if this is your first time, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, We are making our way through the book of James, and it has been a fun ride. Uh, As we make our way to chapter 2, we really spent the whole month of September walking through the first chapter of the book. And... In that first chapter, James makes it a point to highlight several of the issues that he'll go forth and and really uh, unpack throughout the remainder of his letter, all with the purpose of spurring on these dispersed Jewish Christians to live faithfully, to live well, uh, in light of their uh, unfavorable circumstances. If you remember, they're being persecuted, they're on the run. And his instruction to them is to be faithful. Be faithful amidst the trials. Be faithful amidst the tribulations in your life. Be faithful as you hold to an active and authentic faith. But as we move on over now to chapter 2, James is going to start taking some of those themes and really digging into them wholeheartedly. And so as we make our way to chapter 2 and we look at what he's going to unpack, he begins to unpack uh, a big issue in the church. He begins to unpack something that I think most of us would more than likely see this as unexpected. Uh, We think of major issues, uh, oftentimes issues that we see pop up uh, quite frequently in the New Testament, but this one is one that you don't see talked about too much. And as we start to unpack it, you may think, well, why is that such a big deal? But really, if this issue is unaddressed, it could essentially destroy a church. Uh, If this is not addressed, it could cause a lot of harm within the body of Christ. And the the reality is, is that some of you may be engaged in this very thing, and you don't even realize it. You may be involved in this, and you're not even aware of it. So you're probably thinking, what is the issue? And the issue is this, the issue of partiality, otherwise known as favoritism the issue of favoritism. Now, when we think of favoritism, sometimes I know what comes to my mind is a little kid who's running around the house and he thinks that mom and dad have a favorite because he feels that, that the parents treat the other siblings better than they treat him. But favoritism goes beyond that. And as we start to unpack what this means here, we really see that James pulls no punches when he addresses this issue. He pulls no punches as he talks about the dangers of favoritism. And really, as we make our way through this issue, the hope is that we'll begin to take this very seriously as well. And so turn with me to to chapter 2. Let's look at verses 1 through 13. And that's where I want us to, to really unpack four takeaways, four takeaways regarding favoritism. Go ahead and look at verse 1 where we really see the first takeaway, and it is the demand to disregard favoritism. It's the demand to disregard favoritism. Look at verse 1. 
my brethren. Notice the, the term of endearment. He's talking to believers. He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He begins with an instruction. He tells them not to hold or to stop holding their faith with a disposition of favoritism. And what he means by favoritism is really the favoring of someone on account of external appearances. So he's saying that they're looking on the outside and favoring one person over another. It's unjust favoritism that highlights the powerful, the high class, those who are high on the the social status ladder. And it, it elevates those at the expense of others. That's what he's talking about here. Now, to be clear, Scripture does not look favorably on favoritism. Scripture doesn't look favorably on favoritism. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 82 writes this. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Proverbs 18.5, to show partiality to the wicked is not good, nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. You have the Lord speaking in Malachi 2.9, so I also have made you despised and abased before all people. Just as you are not keeping my ways, but you are showing partiality in instruction. So what James is saying is at some point, this church, at some point, these believers, in whatever context they're in, began to show favor or favoritism towards people over another. They've been engaged in partiality. And James's point is that to engage in such a thing as partiality is really inconsistent with the Christian faith. It says it's inconsistent with your profession of faith in Christ to be one who holds to favoritism within the church and even without or outside of the church. He says it's against the faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I were to go around and ask you guys, do you have favorites? You would most likely say yes, right? Some of you are like favorite ice cream that you like having, favorite restaurant that you like going to, favorite sweater that you like to wear, favorite, 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 right? And nothing's really wrong with these things when we consider them. However, when that mentality moves over to the realm of people, then we have a big issue. Now, when we start to elevate some over others, we have a big issue. When we start to accentuate or diminish people in place of others and in light of others, we have a big issue. His command here, his really his demand to these believers is to put away all of the personal favoritism, to put away those things in which we would rank people and declare one as either more important, one as more valuable than the other. And so James is really going to hit this thing hard. And to make his point, he provides us with an example of what he's addressing, just so he's clear. Go ahead and look at verse 2. As he moves from the demand to the example of everyday favoritism. He moves to the example of everyday favoritism. Verse 2. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. So before we continue... What he's doing is he's, he's emphasizing two types of people, two men. 
And he talks about a guy who's coming in and he looks wealthy. This is the first one that he talks about, right? This guy walks in. He's like the social elite. He's the guy on the top of the ladder. Everybody knows who he is. He's the big important guy. So he walks in and he's representing status and power. And he comes in with his gold ring and his fine clothes, right? All of these things symbolizing that I'm an important person. And so he walks up. You can imagine walks in, he's got his nice, his nice robes on, he's got his gold ring, and people look at him and they say, oh, that's, that's so-and-so. Let's bring that over to, to 2021. This might be the celebrity that shows up at your church. And he comes in and he's got the gold chains, big diamond earrings, maybe those glasses that he wears even when it's dark inside, big watch, $1,000 pair of shoes. He comes in and people know who he is, right? comes in, they, they know who that person is. You get a Justin Bieber or somebody walking in here. You get a, what, what's his name, Tom Holland. That's like a new one, Spider-Man. You, you see him walking in. If he were to walk in and, and he has all the fancy clothes on, all the expensive clothes on, right? People know who that person is. What, what's the, the mentality of some people? They'll run over and oh, you give them a lot of attention, right? Hey, can I get you a water? Can I, can I show you to your seat? Everybody starts falling all over themselves. That's the idea that James is talking about here. He says somebody comes in, they look nice. You can tell by their appearance that they're wealthy, that they're well-off, that they're important. And then in behind that person comes in another guy. The second guy that James describes. He's followed by the man that James describes as a, as a poor man. Poor, really could be translated and understood as, as destitute, economically challenged, so much so that he doesn't even have clean clothes, is what James says here. He comes in, he has dirty clothes on. So you get one guy walking in, really important, covered in nice things, and then you get the poor man that strolls in right after. He says, look, if there's a difference in treatment, there's an issue here. Because even back in these times, you could tell a lot about a person's status by their attire. You could even argue, make that argument for now. But go ahead and look at verse 3. It talks about if those two guys walk up and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you run up to him and you say, hey, come, come with me, you sit here in the good place, and you say to the poor man, actually, you, though, you come with me to the back. You're going you're gonna to sit in the back with me. Actually, you're going to sit by my feet. He says in verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? You see what he's saying? You run up to the famous guy, the celebrity, and you say, hey, you get this seat up here, VIP seat. This is the seat that has extra leg room. This is the seat that get, comes with the little water and the little treat on the seat. And you get the very front row right in the center. And you're like, all right, what can I get you? Is there anything else I could do for you? But then you look at the other guy and you say, actually, this, this spot's not, not quite for you. you. You come with me in the back, in the dark, where, where, where you're kind of out of sight, and you just sit right here on the floor. Can you, can you kind of see the issue with this? Can you see where there's a problem with this? 
as we start to consider what we're saying to somebody at that point, all while claiming the name of Christ, he says, look, there's a big, big problem here. One of the things that popped, popped out when I was looking at this verse was just the fact that there was still a poor man who could come into the church. There was still a poor man who came into the assembly. And as, as sad as that is, that he's being treated so horribly, the fact is, I don't know if even modern days, uh, in the church today, if a poor man would make his way into the church. I don't even know if a poor man would get past security in most churches to be able to come in there and to sit and hear the word. Speaks to the sad state of our day with modern churches. That we want to fill the room with people who are well off, with people who can give, with people who look good, especially here in Orange County. Everybody's consumed with appearances. It's all vain. You look the part, so therefore you can be here. But then you have the poor, the destitute, the needy, and they're coming for help. They're coming to, to, to hear the word of God. And yet, oftentimes they're turned away or they're looked at with suspicion. Or like this man here in this verse, they're treated wrongly. I think we can start to see the issue here. See, we love to elevate those who are the social elites. We love to elevate those who, who look good and who are presented well. But when it comes to the people who are, would be considered outcasts by the society, then, we, then it becomes an issue then it becomes a problem. Now let's strip it away from the, the, the context of wealth for a minute. Where else do we see this kind of treatment? How about vaccines and being vaccinated and unvaccinated? Where churches are starting to want to require people to have vaccine passports to come sit in church. Can you guys start to see how this could play out during our time. He says, look, if you're doing this, if you're holding to this, if you're engaging in this kind of behavior, you've made yourself a judge, a judge with evil motives. He says, you're not representing Christ. You're not honoring Jesus. You've simply made yourself a judge based on arbitrary things. External appearances, foolishness. We see this all the time. These megachurches, filled with their, their, their celebrities and celebrity pastors who want to go and hang around with young, famous people so that they can build up their, their, their popularity. I used, to, I used to attend churches like that. I used to attend these kind of churches where you go in and you get your self-help and all you do is you, you watch the celebrity pastors as they, as they hang out with their little cliques and you get the celebrities in the front and everybody else is kind of in the back and everybody's untouchable up there. What does that communicate to the body of believers? What does that communicate 
when you go to these churches and they're being held in, in these Beverly Hills hotels. Could you imagine a poor man trying to walk through a Beverly Hills hotel? I'll tell you, I never saw any poor men in that church service. And if anything, it was more of a socialite gathering. Networking. Bunch of people trying to build their clout. Bunch of people trying to build their following. Bunch of people trying to get in with rich people. And that was the target market of that church. That's why they're at the top of a Beverly Hills hotel. But again, we can remove it from that context of wealthy and look at the, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. You can no longer attend church because you decided not to vaccinate your family. We talk about discrimination. We talk about favoritism. Whether you vaccinate yourself or not is irrelevant when it comes to being a part of the body of Christ. That's the reality. That's the truth. Arbitrary. How about we bring it in a little bit closer? Maybe it's not favoritism in terms of vaccine or not no vaccine. Perhaps it's not wealth or, or, or poverty. How about Wednesday nights? We walk in and we hang out with our little cliques, all the people that, that, that feel like us, but we pay little or no attention to the other people around. I got my favorite people that I talk to. I don't want to engage the other ones. I don't want to deal with the other ones. Not interested. And we start hanging out in our own little cliques. Have you already not made distinctions? What if there's somebody socially awkward in my Bible group? Do I not talk to them? Haven't we already made distinctions then? He's saying these things are not characteristic of Christians. This is not how believers believe and live. He says, look, don't be given over to preferential treatment. Why? Well, he gives us the reasons. The reasons to reject favoritism. Number three in your notes. He gives us really three clear reasons why we need to reject favoritism. The first is the divine choosing of the poor. First reason is the divine choosing of the poor. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. See, he goes right back to the example. And James, he focuses on the poor. And this is something that he does quite a bit during his letter. He really comes back to the issue of the poor. But you can, you can feel the pastoral gentleness and the firmness. He says, beloved brethren, just like he did in verse 1, brothers, did not God elect the poor to be rich in faith? and to be receivers of the present grace of salvation and the coming kingdom? That's what he's getting at. He says, didn't he pick those ones who maybe are, are materially poor to be spiritually rich? Did he not choose them? He chose the poor. 
Now, that's upside down for our world. That's upside down for our culture, but that's how, that's how God typically works when he's doing these things. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, Paul writes this. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. He's chosen these things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. You see, God's way of choosing is countercultural. God's selection is countercultural. His way of doing things is countercultural. And he chose the poor, who were, who were, who were materially poor, yet who were rich in spiritual things. You think back to chapter 1, the crown of life. These are the guys who receive the crown of life. They receive a place in the kingdom. They receive eternal life. By the way, let me just make it clear that he's not choosing, generally choosing the poor because they're poor. If that's the case, all of us would get rid of all of our stuff and we'd just be running around poor, ensuring our, our way into, into the kingdom. But rather, he's choosing the people who, through their material poverty, have come to recognize their need for God. He says through their spiritual, or through their material poverty, they're coming to understand their great need for the Lord, which really highlights their spiritual poverty. It's not just about being materially poor. It's about being spiritually poor. That's how you can have Jesus say in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not just about material things. It's about a spiritual lowliness, spiritual bankruptcy. But he says, look, those who are poor are, are more likely in a general sense to end up those who are spiritually poor because they recognize their great need. That's what he's getting at there. He's saying, look, it's the poor. It's the poor that were chosen. All you have to do is look to Matthew 19 and remember that it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven, right? It's hard for a rich man. The rich young ruler learned that the hard way. See, God elects the materially, poor, the materially poor who are, more importantly, spiritually poor. However, James, his readers had clearly missed the point, completely went over their head. They then completely blacked out. They blanked on it. They fell asleep. It says they fell asleep on it. Why? Because they went and dishonored the poor man. The idea is not to play favorites. We're not playing the game of favorites here. God chose the poor. So he tells us, look, he, he chose them. There's the divine choosing of the poor. He also says, don't do it because of the poor conduct of the rich. There's the poor conduct of the rich. Look at verse 6 where we pick up. It says, is it not the rich who oppress you? and personally drag you into court? 
Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? See, he moves from reasoning based off of the divine choice of God to, to really just logic, simple logic. He says, these guys that you're elevating, aren't these the same guys? Aren't these the same guys tormenting you? Aren't these the same guys oppressing you? Aren't these the same guys taking you to court? Aren't these the same guys creating these problems? These are the same guys blaspheming your God. Why are you elevating them? Why? He's just asking them basic questions here. He says, these are the same guy who exploit you, who, do, who dominate you with really unjust authority over you. They're lording their authority and their power over you. And you want to elevate these guys? You see, these Jewish Christians, they were at the bottom of the totem pole, not only for the Gentiles, but also for the other Jews. They were at the bottom. And he says, you want to elevate the, these guys? It was Calvin who, addressing the, the, the craziness with, with entertaining rich persecutors, he wrote this. He says, there's no reason for men zealously to pay respect to their own executioners and at the same time reason to hurt men who are on their side. I immediately think of like schoolyard popularity, high school stuff, junior high stuff, elementary school stuff, where you get that popular person, right? You get the popular girl in school, and she's just terrible. She's just the worst. She's just angry, pompous, prideful, arrogant, just thinks that she runs the place ordering everybody around, exercising some false authority. But then, for some reason, everybody wants to be her friend. They don't really like her, but they like the status. They like being around that for some odd reason, because they find some kind of benefit. That's the kind of picture that James is putting forth here. He says, look, you're here, you're entertaining these guys that do not like you. You're entertaining these guys who do not care about you. You're entertaining these guys who blaspheme your God. What on earth are you doing? So much so that you're throwing your own people under. You're turning from, from, from the believers. And you show them favor, favoritism? His whole point is, is stop with the favoritism. Stop it now, is what he's saying. This is an issue. You see, when we come to Christ, guys, and when we come to understand and to know Christ, the ground is level at the, at the cross. When we stand before God, there, there's no elevation. There's not people who are closer to Christ and, and the more super Christians and the first class Christians. And then there's your second tier and third tier and bottom tier Christians. That's not how this thing works. That's not how it works. There's no ranks here in the faith. And what he's saying is that as believers, we aren't to be a respecter of persons meaning I'm not going to go over there and elevate somebody because they have more money. You kidding me? Where does it go anyway? Burns up in the end. 
arbitrary, ridiculous, foolishness. Not even Christian. If anything, it's satanic. He's saying you turn from that kind of favoritism. So he moves from, from the divine choice. He goes through simple logic, really. And then he gives them the last reason, which is a scriptural mandate. Scriptural mandate. And he writes this. It's the royal law of love. He gives them the royal law of love. It's the third reason. Verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. See, the whole law, to be summed up, is to love God with all that you are. Your heart, mind, strength, and soul, right? And to love others as yourself. Now, he doesn't go into the first half because he's dealing with human relationships here. But he focuses on the second half, dealing with the issues within the church. And he says, look, if you uphold this law, then you're doing good. And guys, let me tell you, when you uphold the royal law, beautiful, beautiful things happen. In fact, it was in his book, Through the Valley of Kwai, Ernest Gordon, he tells a story of really this transformation of a Japanese concentration camp. And essentially what he says is that in 1943, that whole place was turned upside down. And what you had a year prior was you had this concentration camp that is run down, it's, it's barren, it's got people in it, but they're being treated so miserably, so horribly, working conditions are tragic, they have no food, and people are just being beaten into the ground. Well, fast forward a year, the place looks beautiful. The place is upkept. And you have about 2,000 people worshiping side by side the living God for Christmas. Now, you might be thinking, what happened in that one year? It started with one man. One man who was there, who, as he is fading away on account of having no food and in the poor conditions, he takes his last little crumb of food and he gives it to another man. Soon after, he dies. And the man can't figure it out. He can't wrap his mind around why a guy would do such a thing. Why? Why would he give the last of what he had to me, even at the expense of his own life? Well, they began to go through his things, and what they found was a Bible. And so one by one, each man trying to understand what would drive this man to love somebody to the extent of his life, begin to read the Bible. And one by one, the Lord starts to redeem these people and convert these people and pull them out of the grave and give them new life. And before you know it, in a year's time, this place has been turned upside down. Why? Because one man was faithful. God used one man who held to the royal law, and it transformed thousands of lives. When you hold to the royal law, beautiful things come from it. When we yield to that and we uphold that law, beautiful things happen. But, verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin 
and you were convicted by the law as transgressors. transgressors. James just calls it what it is. He says, look, partiality equals sin. Favoritism is sin. Now, when we hear that, how often do you think about favoritism being sin? Probably not often, right? When's the last time that you went, for, went up to somebody, somebody in your Bible group or in your small group, and you go up and you say, hey, man, I'm really struggling this week. I need you to pray for me. I'm struggling with the sin of favoritism. Probably not often, if ever, right? But it's clearly an issue. I mean, so much so that he calls it what it is. He says, look, if you are doing this, you're committing sin, and you're convicted as a transgressor. You're a lawbreaker. You're on the wrong side of the law. You're going to receive payment and judgment for your sin. For that sin is what he's saying. You know, Paul would second this in Galatians 3.10. He writes this. He says, for as many as are of the works of the law, when we talk about keeping the law, the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to perform them. He says, look, if, if you're not upholding this thing, like he says in verse 10, if you're not upholding this thing, You're guilty of the whole thing. So even when we go through and show favoritism, we're guilty of the law. In fact, he compares it. Look look here in verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law, he uses this as an example. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. He's saying, look, if you break one part of it, you break the whole thing. Now, people like to go through and they say, well, my sin's not that bad because I didn't go murder someone. Well, I'm doing all right. I'm not a, I'm not a thief. Well, I'm doing okay. I'm not looking at pornography. I, I, I'm doing all right. He says, look, if you break any portion of the law, you break the whole thing. You're guilty. It is what it is. You lie, you steal, you show favoritism, you're guilty is the point. And he says all of it makes you guilty under the law. You're a transgressor. You're a lawbreaker. The sin of favoritism is a great offense. Just like any other sin. Just like any other sin. Just because we don't talk about it as much doesn't make it any less sinful. So we have to take it seriously. It's a great, uh, great offense that greatly reveals the heart. So let me ask you this. What's your heart towards the poor person around the corner? What's your heart to the unvaccinated family down the street? What's your heart to the maybe socially awkward person in the student ministry? What is your heart when you think of favoritism? See, it's a big deal. To practice partiality is to engage in sin. 
So what do we do about that? What do we do to avoid favoritism? James gives us the answer in these last two verses. He moves to the action to avoid favoritism. The actions to avoid favoritism. Look at verse 12. What does he say? He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. He says, in light of what you've heard, believers, speak and act. Talk and conduct yourself as if you are one who will be judged in light of the law of freedom. That takes us all the way back to chapter 1, verse 25, talking about the law of freedom. But he's saying, live with eternity in mind. Live with the judgment in mind. So let me ask you, again, another question. Are you speaking and acting with the coming judgment in mind? Are you conducting yourself during your time here on earth with that inevitable day when you stand before the Lord and give an account for it? Is that on the forefront of your mind? He says, you need to remember the judgment. You need to remember what's coming. And you live in light of the law of liberty, by the way. Freedom. Not license to sin, but freedom to live rightly in light of the grace that has been shown you. But judgment is coming, for each one will give an account for his life. Verse 13 says, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. See, Jesus promises his kingdom citizens that blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. You show no mercy, you receive no mercy. That's what he's getting at. If you show no mercy in your life, you receive no mercy when you stand before God. faithful believers, we are to show mercy. And you'll receive mercy. Why? Because the end of verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. See, true believers, those with authentic, genuine, active faith, are merciful, and they receive mercy. They don't play the game of favoritism. They aren't elevating people over other people. Now, as we sit and we think about that, I just want to put it before you. If you've been guilty of the sin of favoritism, I plead with you now to turn and repent. To go to the Lord even right now 
and to repent of it. It might not be with wealth. It might not be with vaccines. It might even be something hidden in the heart. I encourage you to repent from that now. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your grace. Would you please help us, Lord? Uh, I know I've been guilty before of, of committing the sin, the crime of favoritism, Lord. And I, I thank you for your grace that you are impartial, that you do not have favorites because I would not be one of them. Yet you've shown me grace, you've shown me mercy. And for those here who are believers as well, they know that feeling. That you have blessed their lives, that you have opened their eyes, that you will give them the crown of life, that they will enter into your kingdom, and that they will be in your presence forevermore. We pray that for the lost. We pray for those who may be rich materially, or at least enough to believe that they don't need you. And we pray that you would humble them, that you would bring them to their knees in light of who you are, and that you would save their souls. As we consider our friends and our families who are lost, who are pursuing worldly things as they inch closer and closer to the abyss, We just cry out, Lord, asking that you would redeem their hearts and souls. Would you use us? Would you use us to keep the royal law? To give of ourselves. To give ourselves for the sake of others. We pray for October 17th our Sunday grand opening and iHeart Day. We pray for our student iHeart Day on the 20th, asking, Lord, that you, would, that you would save many souls. We thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your kindness. Would you help us to live well? Would you help us to live rightly? Would you help us to live with authentic faith before our King? We love you. We pray this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.